Good to have you all here tonight. We've got a special, special night planned uh, with a special guest from all the way from Cambridge, England. But before we get to Peter Williams, I want to introduce you to kind of the people that make this happen, at least here in the U.S., which are the people from uh, Tyndale House here in the U.S., and that is Philip Evans, and your wife Kathleen is here tonight. I'll pass on to you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your ministry, and then you can introduce our speaker. Thank you very much. Let me give you some context in about two minutes, because it's a little hard to understand. If you haven't heard about Tyndale House, Cambridge before, it's kind of hard to wrap your, your mind around it. So let me just tell you about us a little bit. We are an evangelical biblical research library and the top one in the world. So it's a unique thing, and it's not something you can describe in two minutes, but I'm going to give you a shot at it. Since 1944, Tyndale House, Cambridge, has been tutoring, mentoring, and providing the biblical research platform for evangelical scholars from all over the world. Uh, these scholars come to Tyndale House and stay. It is a residential biblical research library. So it's, it's quite a unique ministry, and it's something uh, that's quite exciting. We have an American 501c3 known as American Friends of Tyndale House that allows Americans to come alongside Tyndale House. Now, we have many famous alumni of Tyndale House, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, J.I. Packer, John Stott, Wayne Grudem, D.A. Carson, John Piper, people you've heard of, people you've been impacted by. But our point is always, and our focus is always, to train and mentor and equip the next generation of biblical scholars. So that's what we're about. So Peter Williams is our warden, and uh, that term is not used quite the same way over here. That means he is the CEO. And, uh, and we don't keep people prisoner over there. They come willingly to study. Uh, but they do stay there anywhere from a month to three years uh, to do some serious uh, biblical research, write books, uh, prepare their PhDs, do all kinds of things. But again, we're always focusing on that next generation because we want to make sure there's good biblical scholarship going on now in 20 years and 40 years and 50 years. So that's what we're about. So I'm going to turn it over to Peter Williams because we want to make the best use of your time and our time. We have to leave here uh, to go on to our next city fairly soon. So let me turn this over to Peter. And uh, again, it's our pleasure to be here with you tonight. Uh, on behalf of Tyndale House, we thank you very much. So I'll introduce Peter. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be here. We're going to be looking tonight at evidence about the Gospels, and hopefully the uh, presentation will be coming up uh, shortly, or maybe I just click. Do I click? Oh, there we are. Particularly the question, can we trust the gospel authors? Uh, is what the gospels have reliable? Are the gospels based on eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony? That's what we're going to be looking at. Here, I'm going to begin with a skeptic who uh, teaches in the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is what he says about the gospels. Bart Ehrman. What do you suppose happened to the stories about Jesus over the years as they were told and retold? Not as disinterested news stories reported by eyewitnesses, but as propaganda meant to convert people to faith, told by people who had themselves heard them fifth or sixth or 19th hand. Did you or your kids ever play the telephone game at a birthday party? So what he says is the stories about Jesus are really like the sort of things you have in the telephone game. Now, what do we know about the telephone game? Who's here has played the telephone game. Lots of you. Well, you know that telephone game is a special game made up with special rules in order to make sure the message gets corrupted. So one of the rules is you have to whisper. 
telephone game doesn't work if you speak at a normal voice or even shout. You're only allowed to say it once. Telephone game doesn't work if you say things twice. You're only allowed to hear it from one person. Telephone game doesn't work if you hear it from more than one person. So it's got very special rules just to make sure that the message gets corrupted. But some people compare the beginnings of Christianity to the telephone game. Now, to me, that's crazy, because that's not how normal things work. Uh, you don't... But people like this idea that gradually, as stories were told and retold, they change. That's how people want to get away from the idea that Jesus really did the remarkable things that are reported about him. Well, I've got a better analogy, I think, for how Christianity began. I think it's more like karate. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm worried that karate is getting corrupted? Because it's taught from one person to another to another. It might get changed. No, because you know that in karate there are, there are disciplines. It, they've got checks and balances, making sure that you've learnt the lessons right. Otherwise, you won't get your belt. You see? And I think that's a better analogy for how Christianity began. But let's ask the question, where were the Gospels written? Well, traditionally, it's thought that Matthew was written in Judea. That's uh, said by at least the 4th century. That Mark was written in Rome. That Luke was written in Antioch, although there are some other traditions as well. Um, and John was written in Ephesus. Now, you can see if you take those traditional places of where the Gospels were written, only one of the Gospels was written in the land that Jesus ministered in, right? Only one of them. Then we could look at a skeptic. I've chosen a German Marxist for, for us. And where does he think the Gospels were written? Well, they're not going to say the same as the traditional thing. He says something different. He has Matthew and Mark being written in Syria, Luke being written in Rome, and John being a team effort, maybe partly written in Israel, then in Syria. By the way, team efforts don't normally create such good literature as John. But he maybe has half a Gospel written in the land where these originate. Then we go back to our sceptic friend, uh, Bart Ehrman. He says this about the Gospels. Where then did these anonymous Greek-speaking authors, living probably outside of Palestine, some 35 to 65 years after the events that they narrate, get their information? So he's of the view that all of them probably were written outside the land. Now, there's a thing about this. <clears throat> you see, if you're going to make up a story about a particular time and place you actually have to do quite a bit of research because they have all sorts of details. If I'm going to write a story, I've got to make sure I get the plants and the farming right, the shapes of the buildings when I describe the temple. How am I going to know what shape that is or the shapes of the houses? Am I have, going to have the right plants, uh, the right description of the culture, of the coinage, the economics, the, the geography, the names of towns and things like that? There's a huge amount you've got to get right. And so I want to ask the question, when we look at the four Gospels and we look at a number of these tests, if you like, and we check, do they get the details right? What happens? Because if the Gospels, by lots of accounts, have been written outside the land, or th at least three of them, skeptics believe that, People who go to, to traditional understandings of the Gospels believe that. It would be very striking if they got this sort of stuff regularly right, wouldn't it? Because how would someone back then 
let's say, Jesus ministers in Judea and Galilee, how would someone in Syria or Turkey or Greece or Italy or Spain or France or wherever it is, Egypt, how would they get those sort of details right? Unless they had reliable people speaking to them. You see? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at just a few tests. The first test is simply the test of what people were called. If you're going to make up a story, do the people have the right names for the time and place? Well, actually, people can study this nowadays because you can look at what people were called back then because there are lots of names scratched on boxes that people put bones in. There are ancient records, the Dead Sea Scrolls, historians like Josephus and so on. And in fact, there are at least 3,000 names uh, from uh, around the time of Jesus and uh, the centuries before and afterwards, which are Jewish names uh, from that land. And what we find is that the names that people have can be studied and you can see which are the most common. And then you can find that though the Gospels and also the book of Acts are probably mostly written outside that land, yet they correctly reflect exactly the right sort of names for that land. Let's look at that in a bit more detail. So let's begin with um, some statistics about names. You wanted to do some work tonight. Well, we got mathematics. If we look at the top two Jewish men's names for people who lived in Israel at the time, we find that Simon was the most popular name outside the New Testament and also the most popular name inside the New Testament. We find that Joseph was the second most popular name for a man, Jewish man, outside the New Testament and the second most popular inside the New Testament. Now, we can put those two together and we can say the top two men's names outside the New Testament are 15 or 16%. The top two men's names inside the New Testament are about 18%. Well, you can see that's not very different. And this is a pattern that shows up over four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, writing five different books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And it's also pretty much the pattern that they would show individually as well. So it's a striking thing, because of course, how could any ancient author collude, make up names so that they would get this sort of pattern? Now, I've got to say, I'm not talking about names like Pilate. He's not a Jew. That doesn't count. I'm just talking about Jewish men. We take the top nine Jewish men's names, outside the New Testament, we find 41% of men have that, inside about 40%. Well, you can see that as the data sample gets bigger, the numbers get closer, which is really striking. With women, there are fewer names that we have from outside the New Testament and also inside, so there's a bit more variation. But still, the top woman's name outside the New Testament is Mary. The top woman's name inside the New Testament is Mary. And you can see the numbers aren't far off given a fairly small sample. Striking thing, isn't it? How would people get that right? Well, I think it would be very hard to get that right if you were just making up stories and putting on Jewish-sounding names to make it sound authentic. I mean, let's say I ask you to write a story about what happened in Libya a hundred years ago. Would you be able to give people the right sort of names? Well, you might know that Gaddafi is a Libyan name or Al-Magrahi or something. You might have an idea of Arab names, but would you know how 
the Arab names in that country differed from the Arab names in another country, and so on. You wouldn't, would you? Do you think you'd even be able to do it if you were writing fiction about what happened in this area a hundred years ago? A hundred years ago, you've got to have, make up a story, have lots of characters, and actually have it so that you get the right proportion of names to each other. Do you think if you had four different people writing four different books of fiction, that they would manage to get the characters so that they have the right proportion of names to each other, across all of them, and basically individually? I think it would be rather tough. We can go on and we can compare the ranks of names uh, in the New Testament, where there are eight different Simons or Simeons, six different Josephs, and we can compare them with what we have in another land. Down in Egypt, there were many Jews, particularly in the city of Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great. And there, they don't have Simon as one of their most popular names. Their most popular name is Eliezer. And their second most popular name is Sabbatius, which in Israel was pretty unpopular, 68th equal. Now, have any of you ever met anyone called Sabbatius? <laughs> have any of you ever met someone called Ptolemaeus, Pappus, why not? Because the Gospels weren't written about Jewish men in Egypt. If they had been, you probably would have had those names quite commonly, but they weren't. So you can see that if someone just said, oh, I'm going to put some Jewish names in my story, you're probably going to not get the right sort of names. But there's a further aspect to this. What if so many people are called Simon? Then you call out, Simon! And lots of men turn their head, don't they? That's a problem. So what you've got to do is what Wikipedia talks about. Disambiguate. You ever come across that term? Click on Wikipedia when there's two things with, with the same name. Tyndale House, Tyndale House Publishers. Okay, disambiguate. You know, that's what you do. So disambiguate is what they did. So think about the Simons you know about in the New Testament. Jesus has two disciples called Simon. One is Simon with the extra bit Peter or Cephas. The other is Simon the Zealot or the Canaanite. Canaanite just means the same as Zealot. It's not to do with the Canaanites who were destroyed. That's another spelling of Canaanite. Then you get um, the name of Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. With Simons, you get in the book of Acts that Simon Peter stays with Simon the tanner or the leather worker. Who carries Jesus' cross? Simon of Cyrene. With whom does Jesus have a meal? With Simon the leper, who isn't a leper at the time because people are sitting around having a meal with him. Maybe Jesus had healed him. But he's got that extra bit on his name. It could be your father's name, where you were born, what your job was. It doesn't matter. But you've got to find some way of distinguishing one Simon from another Simon. And the really striking thing is this. When we look in the New Testament, they have those disambiguators with all of the most common names and not with the other ones. That's the really striking feature. Now, I need a bit of honesty here. Does anyone ever struggle to remember names? <laughs> we got one person, one honest person, two, three, four, five. Yeah, a few. Quite a few of you are honest. Struggling to remember names. Has anyone forgotten the name of someone else here? Yeah? 
Just, just, um, who was, who was, whose name was it? You've forgotten. We'll just point, point them out and we'll, we'll find out what it is. <laughs> no, we do forget names, don't we? Why do we forget names? We forget names because there's no logical reason why someone should have that name. Sometimes there are logical reasons why they shouldn't have that name, but that's an issue for their parents. But, you know, there's no reason that ties that name to that person. So what we find is that we are very good at remembering stories and very bad at remembering names. You can look across the room at that person whose name you've forgotten. You can probably say quite a few things about them. Who's in their family, maybe where they lived, how long they've been in the area, some of the things they've done, some of the funny things they've said, what sort of car they drive. You might be able to say all sorts of things about them, but you're in that social context and you can't remember that vital piece of information. Their name. Oh no, how embarrassing. We watch a film and... uh, We remember what happened in the film. We remember what the major characters do. We remember what the minor characters do. Can we remember the minor characters' names? Can we even remember the major characters' names? We often can think back of films, and we can remember the plot, but not the major character's name. We go on holiday, and we meet some interesting people. We come back and tell our friends. Do we even bother telling our friends the people's names? Nah, they're going to forget them anyway, aren't they? (laughs) So you forget. You you don't do that. You just tell them the story. So what we've got to remember is that names are hard to remember and stories are easy to remember. So guess what? If the Gospels have correctly got the detail that's the hardest thing to remember, isn't there every reason to think they can get the other stuff right? Who was with whom? What they were doing? where they were. That's easy compared with getting the names. And we also know that correct names don't attach themselves to stories as they get told through many different stages. So the telephone game model doesn't really work. There's no way that a story is going to be told through five different stages and keep the right names and exaggerate all of the other things and get that wrong. It's not going to work. And particularly, it's not going to happen for a whole load of stories, you see. So when we look at the Gospels, I think we've got a pattern of information which tells us that we have these stories not as they've been told, second-hand or third-hand, but actually we got them earlier on in the stage of transmission of stories. I think this is part of a case for evidence that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony. Now, I don't say that all of the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses. I think Matthew and John were written by eyewitnesses, not Mark and Luke. But I think Mark and Luke checked with eyewitnesses. They did research. So all of the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony. We can go a bit further. Look at the list of disciples of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. I have added in brackets next to the names of the disciples... (coughs) the rank of that name for Jewish men in Israel if it's in the top 99. If there's no bracket, it's not in the top 99. And look what we find. All of the most popular names have a disambiguator and the other ones don't. So Simon, rank number one, called Peter, disambiguator, and Andrew, not ranking, his brother. Andrew's given with reference to Simon. James, high ranking, number 11, the son of Zebedee, and John, 
his brother. So those two are both explained with reference to their brother. Then we have two low-ranking names. Philip, 61st equal, and Bartholomew, 50th equal. No disambiguator. Thomas, not in the top 99, no disambiguator. Matthew, high-ranking, the tax collector. James, high-ranking, the son of Alpheus. Thaddeus, low-ranking, 39th equal, no disambiguator. Simon, high-ranking, the Cananean. Judas, high-ranking Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, I know there are other things going on in that list, but what we're finding is a correlation between whether it has a disambiguator and the frequencies that have been known for names only for the last decade or so. So it's quite a striking thing, isn't it? We really have evidence that this is uh, based on good witness. Well, let's take John the Baptist. John was actually a very common name. It was the fifth most common name for a Jewish man uh, in the land of Israel or Palestine. So that means if you just talk about John, the question is going to be John who? So Herod says to his um, servants, he hears about the things Jesus is doing and he knows he's beheaded John and he says, aha, this is uh, John. And then You can't just say this is John because his servants would have said, which John? So he says, this is John the Baptist. Matthew then goes on to explain what had happened to John the Baptist in the story of his beheading. So he talks about Herod and how he had seized John. Matthew doesn't need to add John the Baptist because it's very clear when you read Matthew's story which John you're talking about. So the character in the narrative speaks one way, and the narrator, the storyteller, speaks another way, okay? And that's quite important, because characters at the time would have had to have spoken that way. Otherwise, what they would have said would have been unclear. So then, the next verse, Matthew continues and simply says that John says, said, but when Herodias' daughter wants his head, she doesn't just say, give me the head of John, she might have got the head of the wrong John. So she says, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist, at which point all the other Johns breathed a sigh of relief. (laughs) And then in the next verse, he sent and beheaded John. So you see the narrator speaks one way and the characters speak another way, which is the way you would have to have spoken in the land at the time. So I think this is evidence that we have reported what people actually said. Now, there is another way of explaining it, and that is that we have very clever authors who make the story look authentic by writing this way. But let's just remember, the cleverer we make the story writers, the harder it is to say they got it wrong through bungling incompetence, right? So often what people like to do is they say, oh, Christianity is all a conspiracy, and oh, they were so stupid they got it wrong. Let's remember, conspiracies require the Christians to be super clever, and they got it all wrong through being stupid requires them to be stupid. What about that sort of middle way, that they were neither particularly clever nor particularly stupid, they were just particularly middle? Is there anything wrong with that? Is anyone feeling they're middle-ish? You know, well, anyway. (laughs) We can compare the four Gospels with what you have in apocryphal gospels you know there's a lot of stuff in the media hype why don't we have other gospels why do we just have matthew mark luke and john didn't they cut some out no they didn't but anyway that's what happens 
But there are some things from the second and third century, quite a bit later than our Gospels, which are called Gospels. How do they do when you look at the names that they have? Well, there's the Gospel of Thomas. That copies a few names from the New Testament. Um, We've got the Gospel of Mary, but then you ask yourself, which Mary was that? don't even know. And it doesn't even use the name Jesus, just calls him the Saviour. And then there was the Gospel of Judas, which came out recently. It's got two names for the right time and place, Judas and Jesus. And then it's got a whole load of figures from outer space. I mean, it's not exactly very impressive. So I'd say this shows you what can happen when people make up stories. And what you see in Matthew is what happens when people report what's true. That's the obvious explanation. But then there's a further thing, the name Jesus. The name Jesus was actually a very popular name back then. Jesus is simply a form of the name Joshua. There are other Jesuses in the New Testament. Jesus called Justice. Or there's that man called Bar-Jesus, you see. So there were other Jesuses, which means if you said, hey, Jesus is coming down the road, people would have asked, which Jesus? You see. That means we expect characters in the narrative, if they're really being reported, speaking faithfully, to have to disambiguate the name Jesus. And sure enough, that's what we find. When we look at the number of words per gospel, we see that Luke is the longest of them and Mark is the shortest. When we look at the number of occurrences of the name Jesus, we find that John has the most and Mark has the fewest. When we say, well, let's have names of Jesus as a proportion of length, we find John has the most and Luke has the fewest because he's the longest gospel. All I'm doing with those three slides is showing you one thing. The four gospel writers use the name Jesus differently. The only reason I want to do that is to show you they haven't all copied from each other on this. They do different things. And I want you to see that they use the name Jesus differently because I'm going to show you a way in which they show the name Jesus in the same way. We're going to see that. So let's look at Jesus, the sixth most popular name. The narrator in Matthew's gospel simply says, one time they did what Jesus told him. The very next occurrence, the crowds call out, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You see, when you say where he comes from, that specifies which Jesus you're talking about. Then the next thing is Jesus went into the temple. You go on. Chapter 26, Jesus said to him, but then the next occurrence of Jesus is in speech. And then a servant girl comes up to Peter and says, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. A slightly more clued up servant girl says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. But the next occurrence of Jesus is simply plain Jesus because it's not in speech, you see. So narrator speaks one way, characters in the narrative speak another way. We could look at it. When Pilate calls out to the crowds, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus? No, he doesn't say that. Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? You give that disambiguator. You see, he says it again. What shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? Over the cross, Jesus, king of the Jews. Even the angel needs to disambiguate. I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified, he says to the women. That was Matthew's gospel. We can show the same pattern in Mark. You seek Jesus, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. We can show the same in Luke. What do we have to do with you? Call out the demons. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, son of the most high God. Not every Jesus claims to be that. Jesus, teacher. Not every Jesus is a rabbi. Have mercy on us. There's this lovely one in Luke. 
chapter 18, where they, the crowd uh, tells uh, the uh, blind man, they told him Jesus the Nazarene was passing by. Well, you say, well, that's not in speech, but hang on. It's what they reported, isn't it? They reported to him that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, you might think there's an exception when the thief on the cross calls to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me. But that's a one-to-one conversation, quite a different thing. And people on crosses don't waste words. So it's a very different thing. Then, when Jesus meets a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, but they don't yet know it's Jesus, um, uh, he says, well, what things have been going on? They say, oh, haven't you heard the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth? You see, so they do that all the way through. We go to John's Gospel, the same thing. One disciple finds another. We found the one that Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Again, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom we know? Now, a second exception people might come up with is in John chapter 9. A man, uh, Jesus heals a man who's born blind. And then people come and find the man born blind and say, well, who healed you? Uh, or who, no, actually, it's who told you to carry a mat. Uh, and um, he says, the man called Jesus did it. But the point about this story is is he doesn't yet know Jesus fully. The whole of chapter 9, we'll see how he doesn't... First, he receives his sight physically, then he receives his sight spiritually. So if you want to portray someone as only having half knowledge of Jesus, then he only really knows half the way of identifying him. And then, in the garden, people come to arrest Jesus. Whom are you seeking? He says, twice. Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. They can't just say Jesus. There were probably some Jesuses in the crowd that had come to arrest him, you see. So it's a striking feature across all four Gospels, and no one noticed that until a couple of years ago. At least I don't think anyone noticed it. Never heard of it. Um, And over the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So what I'd say is I can't prove this is true, but the pattern of names that you have in the Gospels is not the sort of pattern you would expect if things were made up. It's what you'd expect if things, they really were reporting uh, what happened. That's what you'd expect. So that's the first test. More briefly, the test of geography. Do they get the places right? That's simply what we're going to ask. There's actually loads of geography in the Bible, and I think God has written it so that you can know it's trustworthy. I mean, think about it, obviously. If the Gospels were written outside Israel, how on earth did people know travelling times, where the land goes up and down? When it says just simply in Matthew, you know, Capernaum by the sea, you think, well, how did they know Capernaum was by the sea? How would you look that sort of thing up? It's not as if there were bookshops in Rome where you could get a description of Israelite villages. I mean, no one in Rome was interested in reading about that. No one's going to copy out a book for someone random to walk in and say, you know, I want to find out about Israelite villages so I can write a fictional story. No, it just doesn't happen. If the books that were written about geography were all the great places you needed to visit before you died, maybe somewhere in Egypt or something, some great temple, but not these sort of places. So when we look in the New Testament, we see how the Gospels record the various places that Jesus did things. The most commonly mentioned place is, of course, Jerusalem. Then Nazareth, 
where uh, Jesus was brought up, Capernaum, where he moved when he was a young adult, and a number of other places, uh, including some pretty obscure names. All of them fit the sort of pattern. Uh, they, they work as Hebrew or Aramaic names. They're not made-up names. Uh, that's uh, an interesting thing. If someone just been making up geographical names, they wouldn't have given them the right pattern. So those are the places that are mentioned. Well, who in Rome would have heard of Bethphage or something like that, that little village near Jerusalem? You wouldn't do unless you knew someone who'd been there. We then compare it with some apocryphal gospels. I got 16 that could be gospels um, from the second and third century. Whereas the four gospels have 12 to 14 towns each, a total of 23, the gospel of Philip, which uh, is a pretty long text, only has two names of towns from Israel. One is Jerusalem, which is, of course, the capital, so that's not very impressive knowledge, and the other one is Nazareth, which is in Jesus' name, so it's easy to get that. Although the Gospel of Philip seems to think it's his middle name rather than a place, which is not very impressive. <clears throat> a couple more Gospels. They each mention one place, uh, one town, and it is Jerusalem, which is the capital which everyone had heard of. And then the 13 other ones we looked at. Well, they have none. So if you want all of the correctly placed towns in these 16 apocryphal Gospels, you have one, and it is Jerusalem, which is the capital. So this is what happens when people make up stories. You know, if you want to make up a book of historical fiction, I was thinking about writing a story. It probably wouldn't have been a good one, but what put me off was the thought, it would be a ton of work if I had actually to research the time I was going to set the story. You see, it would be loads of work. I thought, nah, don't like that. Uh, so there we are. I still just tell it to my kids. Now... We looked at the number of words per gospel already. Uh, that's those four left-hand columns. I also have given you some of these apocryphal gospels on the right. Gospel of Philip, Thomas, Judas, Peter, and Mary. Uh, Peter and Mary look a bit too short because they actually don't survive in their entirety. But you can see our gospels are longer than these things that get all the hype in the media. I want you to stare at those four left-hand columns, these ones here. These ones here, and I'm just going to change slide from the numbers of word per gospel to the number of place names per gospel. Number of words per gospel, number of place names per gospel, number of words per gospel, number of place names per gospel. Do you notice anything? Well, firstly, those apocryphal gospels don't have many place names. I'm not just talking about town names, which is the last thing I talked about. I'm talking about place names, which includes rivers or a place like Golgotha and so on. But we also noticed that these guys basically kept the same shape, didn't they? These four left-hand ones. So if I say, let's have place names per thousand words, I find a remarkable pattern. Apart from this thing that's too short and therefore a statistical bump, these guys, which are all long texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have the same proportion of place names. Not number, proportion. You can check this. You can get your English translation if you can do anything computering. Um, you know, get the text electronically, just get the capitalized words, strip out the ones that aren't place names, and just run it through. Check. It's not hard to do. But the point is, they have the same proportion. How can we explain it? I have an explanation. Luke says to Mark, Hey, Mark, how many words do you have in your gospel? 
Mark goes through carefully counting them. Now, in those days, in manuscripts, they didn't have spaces between words. That made it harder for Mark to count, but he was hardworking, so he kept on counting those words. When he got to the end, Luke said, Mark, could you go through and uh, count the place names? Now, in those days, they didn't have capitalization and small letters. That made it harder to find all the place names, but... You know, Mark went through carefully counting them all, and then they did a sum, and then Luke decided to copy it and get the same proportion. Matthew and John heard about this. They thought it was a great idea, and so they did it. I mean, no, sorry, it doesn't really work as an explanation, does it? If people were putting in place names to make their story sound authentic, if they were trying to reach for very similitude, an attempt at making it sound true, one would have put in too many, one would have put in too few. They wouldn't have that evenness. But if they were all just reporting the same sort of story, reliably putting in names when it was relevant, when the story is long enough, yes, might they get the same you know, pattern of place names? That seems to me a more plausible explanation. So again, it's not the sort of pattern that could be made up very easily. And again, those numbers weren't known until about three years ago. The test of botany, just a quick one here. Does anyone know the story of Zacchaeus? Yeah, the story of Zacchaeus? Anyone sing the song? <laughs> A cappella. Oh, no. <laughs> Zacchaeus climbed up a tree. What sort of tree? Very good. More difficult question. What town was he in when he climbed it up it? Jericho. Who was it who said Jericho? Well done, madam. That's very good. So what's the question we're going to ask? Are there sycamore trees in Jericho? And the answer is, of course, you bet. And here are some men in one. They're great trees for climbing. Um, this is the Ficus sycamorus, by the way. Not the North American sycamore, nor even the British sycamore, but genuine Middle Eastern sycamore. So how does Luke, when he writes this story, know there are sycamore trees in Jericho? Either he's been there, or he's talked to someone who's been there. He could have been told by a Martian, but even then the Martian would have had to have been there. You see? So, it seems that's pretty reliable. Now, you can look at the distribution of Ficus sycamorus, both th uh, uh, then and now, and you find that actually these things did not grow in Turkey, Greece, or Italy. Someone in those countries wouldn't even have known of this thing to make up the story. So it's a pretty striking sort of pattern. But that's another sign, just of reliability of the text. Let's go on with a bit more. Let's look at the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there aren't that many things that are in all four Gospels. All four Gospels have the passion of Jesus and the resurrection, but they don't have all four reporting one miracle with the exception of the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to look and see, is this reliable reporting? Well, how do you count 5,000 men? Well, we know that sometimes in churches, not here, people exaggerate numbers, don't they? Thousands of people here tonight, uh, and, and so on. <clears throat> uh, and so the question is, well, how did they know there were 5,000? I mean, isn't that they looked at a crowd and just guesstimated how many there were? Actually, no. Mark and Luke both tell us that Jesus commanded that people sit in groups, groups of hundreds or fifties, and groups of fifties we have in Luke. That's actually an important thing because Jews were quite careful before they had a meal to say grace, and the sort of grace you said depended 
on how big the group was. So it's not a trivial thing. But actually, if they sit in groups like that, and Jesus has 12 disciples, it's not that many for them each to count. It's about eight. So assuming, you know, fishermen can count up to eight fish and tax collectors can count a bit higher, um, then probably it's the sort of information you can get reliably. But let's look at the story. Well, according to Mark, there was green grass. Is that just a detail made, put in there to make it look authentic? But Mark, but John tells you there's much grass. Again, could be a trick, couldn't it? Maybe it is. Then Mark tells you that there were many people coming and going at the time. Doesn't tell you why. But John tells you it was Passover time. Aha! At Passover time, people travel to Passover. So I can use the detail in one gospel to explain the other. This is a subtle agreement, an undesigned coincidence, it's sometimes called, where there's an agreement between the gospels which is so subtle that no one could say they put it there to make the story look authentic. It just the sort of thing that happens when people report stories uh, truly. Then, in John's gospel, Jesus asked his disciple Philip where to buy bread from. A couple of verses later, Philip replies. Three verses later, Andrew replies. Well, why does Jesus ask Philip, and why do Philip and Andrew reply? Luke tells us that the feeding took place near Bethsaida, and John, at the beginning of his gospel, told us that Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida. Aha! If I read through John's gospel, I see no significance whatsoever to why Jesus turned to Philip and asked him, and why Philip and Andrew get involved in the reply. However, if I plug in the information from Luke, suddenly it all makes sense. Jesus turned to a man with local knowledge and asked him where to get bread from. He and another man with local knowledge get involved in the reply. Do you see? So that makes sense. And even the little detail that the little boy in John had barley loaves fits exactly with the time of Passover when you've just had the barley harvest. So it really all fits together. But then we ask the question, but would the grass have been green at the time? Let's get a precipitation chart from a nearby town. So we go to a nearby town, Tiberius, <laughs> and we look and we say, when was Passover time? Oh, We've just had six of the greatest months of precipitation. Would the grass have been green? You bet. So you see that everything fits together. Now, someone might say, yeah, but that doesn't prove the miracle took place. Quite right. I'm not saying it proves the miracle that took place. But I am saying this. If you think that the miracle arose by being told like telephone game style, and gradually the story got exaggerated, you have a problem. And the problem is this. When people show lack of attention to detail in one area, it tends to spread over to the next area, doesn't it? So how can you have them not really caring about the details of the really big thing in the story and then getting all the peripheral stuff right? Doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm not saying I can prove that the miracle took place, I'm just saying the way people try and explain it away as just being told through many different versions of the story until eventually it becomes really miraculous, that isn't a very good explanation. So let's conclude, and there'll be a bit of time for questions. Uh, you can't prove everything to be historical, but if the Gospels did come 
from the conspiracy or incompetence, this is not what we would expect. If the Gospels were produced on stories based on several steps, again, this is not what you would expect. And here I'd say that the Gospels are rather like a hurdle race. You know, you can actually knock over hurdles and still win a race, but that won't work for this analogy. <laughs> but what happens is each of the tests that there are, whether it's the botany, the geography, the names, the knowledge of coinage, the knowledge of religion, all sorts of things we haven't even gone into. Each of those is like a test, like a hurdle. And if the Gospels get over each one of them, that would have been a very, very difficult thing for someone to get right if they were making up a story. There are all sorts of things. I mean, just one example I haven't talked about is the Jewishness of the Gospels. You know, Christianity began in the cradle of Judaism, yeah? It was most Jewish at the beginning. And then after a little while, Gentiles come in, it becomes less Jewish, you see? So if the four Gospels are really, really Jewish, that tells you they didn't come from a late stage, doesn't it? But that's what they are. They are very Jewish. So over to you for some questions. We've just got a few minutes. I think there is a roving microphone. So do stick up your hand and uh, ask a question. You don't have to be shy. Um, otherwise, um, it will be the final song sooner. in the lobby relative to your future at such a very young age and you had a very interesting reply would you share that with uh, the group <laughs> he asked me about my future in general okay well uh, thank you for that question um, I'm hoping to be at Tyndale House in Cambridge Lord willing for the future obviously they say the way to make God laugh is to show him your plans uh, and I don't want to attach too much to that James tells you you know, don't boast about what's going to happen tomorrow. But I do plan to be at, at um, Tinder House in Cambridge because I feel called to it and I'm hoping to be there long term because we really want to raise up people who will defend the Bible in the public arena, um, uh, help the church to gain confidence in the Bible um, and, uh, and, and so on. That's what we're interested in doing, training up young people. And it's a really exciting work. So thank you. These arguments that you have presented this evening are very unique. How long have they been in development? Mm, that's a good question. Um, the name argument, what happened about 20 years ago is a German feminist called Tal Ilan started wanting to find out about all sorts of minor characters. And so she just gathered everything she could about people's names at the time. Then about 10 years ago, a British scholar called Richard Borkham uh, compared those with the Gospels and said, hey, they've got some pretty good correlation. Um, I then took that argument in the last, say, four or five years and have uh, added a number of features to it, both the things about what's in speech marks and so on um, that people hadn't spotted before. Uh, I think I spotted that a couple of years ago. Um, and. Uh, the whole idea of names being difficult to remember. The geography, uh, I asked someone about three years ago, can you just compare the um, apocryphal gospels and the canonical gospels? I expected the apocryphal gospels wouldn't have many place names. And when I got back that chart with those bars like that, I thought, oh, 
That's interesting. Um, so there are sort of questions to ask. Um, then the ones about the feeding of the 5,000. A lot of those go back 150 years to a guy called John J. Blunt, who wrote a lovely book called Undesigned Coincidences in Holy Scripture, an argument for its veracity. Long, sort of winded title they used to do. Basically, the idea, things fit together. So, like in uh, Genesis, where Isaac marries Rebecca, but if you trace them down from um, uh, Abraham's father, Terah, you find that Isaac is one generation above Rebecca. Oh, but we also remember that the story tells us that, that, that tells us that Abraham didn't have a child until he was very old. Oh, yeah, so that explains it again. It's that sort of thing that he just pulls out all, all the time. So I added the precipitation chart to that and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, arguments take a, a long time uh, to develop. There's lots to be done. But I am convinced that God has written the scriptures so that ordinary people can trust them. It's not, you know, that you have to be all clever and have lots of charts and so on. Because God writes the scripture so that you read, say, the triumphal entry that, you know, we've been thinking about recently. And Jesus comes down the hill. Well, how do they know there's a hill outside Jerusalem? There is. You know, how, how do they know that there are palm trees there? How do they know there's a fig tree to curse? How do they know the hill is called the Mount of Olives? How do they know the names of the villages? All of these things are written there so that ordinary people can pick up a Bible, never having done a lot of historical research, and say, I can see that there are signs of authenticity about this. And it's not just historical authenticity. There are signs of other sorts of authenticity. It's trueness to life. So God has written scripture. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I don't want to make arguments that stand in the way of the Bible. I want people to come to the Bible and, and read it because I think that's how people will come to faith. Um, and so uh, God has written the Bible in such a way that people who are seeking will really see that there's evidence for God within Bible. Does that make sense? We've got a question uh, first, yes, first of all, thank you very much for being here. This has been most enlightening. My question is that I once heard Bart Ehrman, whom you referred to on the radio, talking about the differences in the resurrection accounts in terms of the identity of the women who came and so forth, and using this as a reason, I suppose, to doubt the authenticity. Recently, in reading something from N.T. Wright, he actually uses this as a reason to say it is more authentic. Mm -hmm. And I would ask you, what is your view of this? Yeah, I, 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 when I look at the resurrection accounts, I see lots of signs of authenticity. They have some significant differences between them, but the pattern of differences is the sort of pattern that would happen if you had different people independently reporting what they saw, not what would happen if they colluded or one was just exaggerating. So if I can give an example, um, Matthew has the women running along and meeting Jesus, and then it says they clung onto his feet. John doesn't have that. He just says, he, uh, Jesus meets Mary, and he says, do not cling on to me. Aha, uh -huh. there's a sort of subtle agreement there, you see. And those are the sorts of things that I would find in, in, in the Gospels. People say, well, how many angels were there? What did they say? And so on. If you add the narratives together... There have to be at least six women, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, um, and Salome and Joanna. And we have, um, you know, Luke talks about other women, it implies there's more than six, in fact. Well, 
six women don't bundle into a tomb all at the same time. You know, they're at different angles. That means that they can truthfully see different things and report different things to the people who write the Gospels. So I think the narratives, the differences can be explained and the pattern of them is not the sort of thing you would get if people were making up stories. Yeah, I think maybe got time for a, a last question or two. Yeah, sir. What version of the scripture was used to do your research and have you done a comparison with all the many versions that are currently available to see if there are discrepancies among them? Thank you. Well, the, the, I tend to read the Bible in its original languages, so I'm not necessarily the best person to ask for recommendations on an English translation. Um, you can do lots of comparisons using Bible Gateway or, or you know, um, software things. I have to declare a vested interest. I am on the committee for the English Standard Version. Um, uh, but what I would say is the best translation to use is the one that you use the most. I mean, I really do think that is important. And I do think it's good to have a translation that you can study closely. I mean, it's fine to have an easy read on the beach version, uh, you know, for when you're on the beach. But I do think, you know, scripture is so important. We want to get down to the exact words uh, as often as we could. If you want to use a few different translations, you could get one from you know, hundreds of years ago, like the King James, and some, a couple of modern translations, and if you like, you've got all three, and at least the one 400 years ago didn't have our modern biases, although it might not have all of the modern information we have, you know, and I think that's not a bad way to go, have, have three different translations for, for really serious study, but you want one that you really know and get to love. Thank you. Maybe one more, and then I'll stop, because I've got to get to the airport. Right. <laughs> Yes, yeah, this gentleman at the back. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Speaking of names, Matthew and Luke use two different genealogies for Jesus. Mm -hmm. what, what's the uh, difference? Well, I mean, there are some significant differences. Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus from Abraham through David. Uh, through the uh, time of the um, um, removal to Babylon, um, and in that, uh, the father of Joseph is called Jacob. Um, that's different from what you have in Luke's gospel, uh, where in Luke's gospel, it goes all the way back from Jesus through to Adam and gives um, Joseph another name that just temporarily escapes me. Someone will remind me what it is. Um, how can Joseph have two different fathers, people might say? That's impossible. No, it's not. I mean, we know that people can often have two different fathers, uh, but they're fathers in a different sense. They can't have two biological fathers, uh, admittedly. But, Luke, but Matthew gives us a bit of a clue here. You see, what it says is that at first... Uh, Joseph knew that Mary was expecting a child, but did not know why. He was inclined to divorce her. Let's say he spoke to his dad at the time, as you might do in these sort of family situations. Dad, what should I do? Then a little bit later, Joseph says, ah, an angel has appeared to me and said, you need to stay with her. You know, what does dad say? You're no longer my son. That's embarrassing. I'm not having anything to do with you. You know, I mean, it's the sort of thing one can imagine. So yes, there are differences between the genealogies, um, but I think you can explain those sorts of differences that there are. 
So that would be what I'd say briefly. Thank you very much. <laughs>